Yo, neighbors, welcome back to the Strange Neighborhood Podcast. I'm here with you, Kaylin, and it is episode 14. Yeah, episode 14. And I just want to say I started off creating this episode, um, and I was going to just present some lectures from Manly P. Hall, but um, I found his lectures on Atlantis, and then um, I sort of wanted to like compare it with other mystics and see what they were thinking about Atlantis and I had like everything recorded for the Manly P. Hall episode and then once I um went to dug in went and dug into a few more places and found some more information um from some old mystics about what they thought about Atlantis I thought I should just make it an Atlantis episode it'd be fun and exciting and mysterious so this is um Atlantis through the eyes of the old mystics my favorite ones anyway and I think you guys are gonna really enjoy this it's just like a few um respectable mystics and just their viewpoints or like um theories about Atlantis or what they thought so I hope you guys really enjoy that <clears throat> but before we get started I was just like having some thoughts today and I really want to just get them out there um and just complete this thought by telling it to you guys and see what you think. So I was, I am often thinking about simulation theory and like, I sort of feel like we are in some kind of simulation. Okay. Not just sort of like, I do think it is a simulation, like an organic type simulation, sort of like a dream. Right now, that's what I think, but you know, I don't have a death grip on that theory. It's always evolving. So I sort of think of life as like a dream state and that's what makes time relative. And that's what makes um, us forget where, what we truly are because it's the same as like the dream state when we go into it here and how we feel and how we just get trapped up in the character of the dream. But I was like starting to think like, how can you prove you're in a simulation? Like if you're in a simulation, how would you prove it? How can you, is there, so I was thinking like, if you were in a dream, how would you prove it? Or like, how would you, I guess you would like test, test it to see like in a dream, you'd say like, people say they, you pinch yourself, right? And that's a test. You don't feel the pain or whatever. But sometimes in dreams, you do feel pain and things are different. And sometimes you can do certain things and sometimes you can't, right? So it's hard to test. So I was just like thinking about, like, first I started the thought thinking, oh, you can't test if it's a simulation. But, but then I was like, no, because you can test if it's a dream. You can tell if you're in a game and like where like the end of the rendering is or things like that like there's tests so you know the parameters or um the nature of the simulation so how do you realize that you're dreaming um and i think it's you just become conscious of the fact that you're dreaming right so you become cognizant that you are a dreamer and you're in another state in another place and that isn't who you truly are it's about becoming conscious um or 
you can test it by doing something impossible. You do something impossible or you make something impossible happen that defies logic or defies the supposed laws of the realm. But it seems in this simulation, you can't wake yourself up like there's no early eject. (laughs) You have to go through the death process. You can't, it's not like a dream. You can't snap out of it by becoming conscious. Maybe you can if you become conscious enough. Maybe you can. Oh, that's a thought for another time. So (laughs) if you can't wake yourself up, we need to be more conscious that we are in a dream, that we have control of the realm around us. That is that the realm around us is formed from within us. Do you know what I mean? So if it really is a dream state and our job is to become more conscious so that we can manipulate um, the realm or the state around us because that's what we are meant to do, I think. Learn to manifest and manipulate our realm. Then it is within us. So the so same as a dream is formed from within us, right? Okay. So then after that, so I was like, that's all good. There's some cool thoughts, like thinking about that. And then I was just like, bang, I got this weird thought. And I was like, what if, what if, what if I'm in a coma, right? That's, that makes sense. Why I can't wake up. Right? And then all the clues around me are just my consciousness trying to tell me that it isn't real, that I'm dreaming, that this is a dream. But the dream is so convincing. It seems so real. But you know, something, there's something not quite right about it all the time. There's something a little off. Right? Right? And so there's clues. And there's little ones at first. And then once you notice them and become more conscious of that, there's bigger clues. And there's more signs and synchronicities to show you that this isn't real. And maybe it's trying to nudge you to like wake up And I'm not sure (laughs) if that's a creepy or a comforting thought, but you can't wake up anyway. So what difference if you're in a coma or if you're in a simulation? We got to play it out, right? Right? So we're playing it out to the end. So how can we make it more to our advantage? Well, we learn to manipulate it. We learn to use our power within it. We We learn to be creators in our space. And with that, <laughs> I'm going to leave you in the hands of these great mystics. So um, sit back and listen to some cool stories about Atlantis from Edgar Casey, Manly P. Hall, Dolores Cannon, and some stuff from Plato. And I also added a little poem that I found in a, in a newspaper from the 1800s at the end about Atlantis. That's pretty cool. Um, 
yeah, so thanks for joining me again. Hope you enjoy this episode. Come find me on Instagram. Let's talk about Atlantis or let's talk about the simulation. <laughs> Love you guys. First reading will be from Manly P. Hall um, from his manuscript lectures, 1923 to 1925. And this lecture is titled Atlantis, the Lost World. For centuries, our modern world, great civilizations precede them. But today it is generally admitted by the best minds working on the subject that mighty civilizations have preceded our own puny effort and that the ground we walk upon is made up of the powdered bones of kings. Hundreds of feet under the earth lie civilizations undreamed of by the average individual, but this is an age of exploration, and one by one, the secrets of the past are being rediscovered. Sestry, that he may know his propagators, the crook-bone man and the piltdown savage. It was Plato who dreamed of the lost Atlantis, and his dream has been preserved in the hearts of exploring scientists and philosophers. Even today, we are still searching for more information concerning this ancient continent. There are four possible sources of information. The first is the crude stone carvings of the ancient world. The second is the weird mythological legends of ancient peoples. The third is geology. For the records of all things are preserved for the duration of the planet in the stratas of rock. The fourth source of information is the invisible spiritual records that are preserved in the memory of nature. These, of course, are far more complete than any of the others. First of all, let us sum up some of the interesting things that we are discovering about the prehistoric worlds. There is every proof of the fact that at some time in the past, there was a race of greater power. Members of this race traveled to all parts of the world, carrying with them the symbolism and tradition of their people. The similarity between the Egyptian hieroglyphs and the language of the American Indians is very striking. The curator of well-known museums told me the other day that they were digging up Tibetan antiques in Mexico. The Egyptian symbol of life was carved on the back of many of the great stone faces on the Easter Islands off the coast of South America. All these facts bespoke a lost culture which has vanished but left its mark upon the rocks and stones. There is a wonderful legend found in the mythologies of almost all nations that tells about gods who came out of the sea. The American Indians tell of holy men dressed in birds' feathers and wampum that came out of the blue waters 
instructed them concerning the arts and sciences. There's a very wonderful legend found in the mythologies of almost all nations that tells about gods who came out of the sea. The American Indians tell of holy men dressed in birds, feathers, and wampum that came out of the blue waters and instructed them concerning the arts and sciences. Among the Chaldean Indians, we have a story of they had a god of good, whose name means a feathered snake. He too came out of the water, and after instructing his people, rode out to sea on a raft of serpents to escape the wrath of the fierce Aztec devil god. Ezraelite came out of the sea and then returned again after leaving their arts and sciences with the primitive people. Who were these demigods that rose from the waters? Where did they come from, and where did they go when they left? And why is it that every nation has, as its first civilizer, one of these mysterious creatures that appear from the water? The average person has no answer to offer, but the mystery schools teach that these strange ones were Atlanteans, whose empire once stood where the waves of the Atlantic now roll. Let us now briefly consider what they tell us that there have been five continents. The first was called Pan and occupied the polar cap. The second was called Isica and extended further downward from the poles. The third was called Lemuria and it was a great continent connecting Australia, India, and the islands of the sea and extending over towards the American continents. The fourth was Atlantis. The great continent occupied the Atlantic Ocean Basin. It reached from Greenland to the north to Africa and South America at the south. It connected Europe with the coast of North America. This great empire began to decline a million years ago, but in the days of its glory, it was magnificent, a progressive empire. The Atlanteans did not build great number of cities. They built one great metropolis in the midst of their empire, which they called the City of the Golden Gates. They also built seven other great cities in the midst of the seven provinces of Atlantis. One of these provinces seems to have been Egypt. The Atlanteans were masters of many arts and sciences, which we have entirely lost, especially among them the power of moving tremendous masses of rock unbelievable distances. In the city of the Golden Gates stood the great university. We are told that it was the greatest institution of learning that the world will ever know. It covered literal miles. In the midst of it rose a great pyramid with a broad flight of steps leading up each surface. On the top of the pyramid was an astronomical observatory where, by means of stone instruments, the Atlanteans studied the power and motion of the celestial bodies. Nearly all the arts and sciences which we have in the world today were given to the man first in the great university of Atlantis. The Atlanteans were fabulously wealthy and roofed their temples in solid gold. They were the red men who were now only a group of scattered wanderers, but who then ruled the world. While our race were savage barbarians, gnawing bones in central European caves and unworthy of any great consideration. The city of the Golden Gates was the hub of the Atlantean world. The religion of Atlantis was sun worship, and from the root have grown all the religions of the modern world, with the exception of a very few ancient Lumerian cults. 
such as we find among the Bushmen of Australia and so forth. Outside of the wheel of Atlantean learning stretched wilderness peopled by barbaric tribes of brown, yellow, white, and black men. As we send missionaries to spread our gospel in distant lands, so the Atlanteans sent their priests and missionaries to all parts of the world where they educated the then ignorant natives in the arts and sciences which they had mastered. There is no doubt in the world that these missionaries sent from the city of the Golden Gates were the men who came out of the sea, for they brought the culture of the then most progressive civilization to the savage nations far less culture than themselves. They came with the glory of their golden ornaments. They brought with them the Atlantean symbol of wisdom, the serpent. We have learned to call them the serpent king or the progenitors of wisdom. Wherever they want, they built pyramids to duplicate the Great Pyramid in the city of the Golden Gate. Navigation was thoroughly understood by this ancient race, and there are even records of the effect that they used systems of locomotion not unlike those we have today. They were the greatest propagandists that the world has ever known. <laughs> they carried the message of the serpent everywhere, even into China, India, Persia. In the midst of the great campaign for spreading their doctrine, which sank Atlantis, began, and at last, just a few thousand years before the Christian era, the island of Posidia, Pos, Posidia, the, the islands of Posidia, occupying the area where the Anzores Island are today, sank, carrying with it 60 million people in 24 hours, this was the last of the great Atlantis. The priest kings who promised to return to their missionary settlements never came back, and gradually the people forgot where the secret doctrines had come from. At last, all they could remember was that they had come out of a place where the sea now is. The secret doctrines and keys were lost through the ages. The world of the red man was captured by the barbarians, and the culture of a new race took the place of the old. But still, each of these different groups faintly remember that in the dawn of time, great, gleaming, godlike figures had come out of the heavens and planted the seeds of philosophy and religion among them. The demigods of the ancient world were the Atlantean priests. Their glory and power terrified the savage nations with whom they came in contact. The wandering Aborigines bowed before the glorious figures clothed in cloth of gold, and kissed the very ground where these demigods walked. There is no doubt that the day when the gods walked with men that has been preserved in myth and legend is the day of Atlantean civilization. It is said that one of the rulers of Atlantis was called Zeus, who later became the god of the Greeks. The city of the gods, which every nation has preserved record of, was the glorious city of the Golden Gates, which to the savage nations that gather outside of its walls seemed a supernatural and divine thing which we could not understand. The Great Pyramid of Egypt was copied from the University of the Serpent Wisdom, and when Atlanta sank, a few survivors preserved the ancient doctrine in Egypt and Childs. <laughs> 
and the ancient red civilization of Egypt was a descendant of Atlantean culture. Over 40 great religions have grown out of the secret teachings of Atlantis, and nearly all of the Masonic mysteries can be traced to the Atlantean world. We owe more to Atlantis than we can ever hope to pay, but we also owe to this ancient nation all the wars and strife which we have. Atlantis began to fight. They were the beginning of war and the cure of the seeds which they planted has followed every nation of the planet since. About a million years ago in northern India, our own race was born. It was called the Arya race. Its first divisions were composed of what we now call Hindus, and they descended into the Indian Peninsula, capturing and murdering the Aboriginal peoples who dwelt there. Thus they began to build that karma for which they are still paying. A few of the ancient people who were not killed became outcasts, whom the Hindus looked down upon as being of no account. Many of the modern Hindu dancing girls who have neither social nor religious standing but are merely the playthings of modern India trace their ancestry back to the ancient races which the modern Hindus captured and practically exterminated. Gradually the area race spread passing over into Europe and finally by coming to America. It has practically destroyed the last of the Atlanteans, the American Indians. Tomorrow we are exterminated as today they are, for race after race rises and falls in the endless pageantry of human change. It was the Atlanteans a million or more years ago who first used the cross as a symbol of divinity, and they went forth converting the world into the name of the cross, which to them was a symbol of universal life. A great many of the rituals and implementations of modern Christianity have come up through the Atlantean civilization, for they were the progenitors, the ancients of days, who, while we are still uncultured and uncouth, ruled the world, wrote libraries, and unfolded the principles of mathematics. Under the rolling waters of the Atlantic lies the city of the Golden Gates. The hub of the wheel is lost, and the spokes lies shattered around. The heart is dead, but still our own civilization carries on the primitive culture of Atlantis. We have added to it, but never made any very radical changes. We have developed further than they did, and we have developed on the basis of their discoveries. When you read the stories of the gods and demigods, do not look upon them any longer as supernatural creatures created out of the minds of savage nations, but view them rather as the priest kings, the missionaries who went forth from the city of the sun and carried the messages of wisdom to all parts of the earth. It is through them that religion has its direct apostolic succession. For in each case, these priests carried with them the implements and sacred relics, blessed in the temple by the golden gates, and each of the serpent kings was ordained into the mysteries of the feathered snake, the lord of the serpent kings. Part 2 
Very few people know of this wonderful land. Now one with the forgotten things of today, there is very little to remind us of the ancient continent that was once so fair and greater even than ours in glory and beauty. A land filled with happy homes, with peasants, statesmen, and philosophers. All those things which we now think of in connection with the highest and greatest phases of life. This great continent now lost, the great land of Atlantis, is now somewhere miles beneath the ocean, and over it pass our great ocean liners and sailing ships. Strange sea creatures now play through the pillars of its ancient temples. Weeds and mosses are twined around its ancient gateways. Its libraries containing the sacred tomes of ages have vanished from the light of day and are now known only to the finny denizens of the deep, a land of desolation miles under the surface of the sea blue waters. Its wondrous arches thick with coral, its statues deep beneath the shifting sands of the ocean bottom. In truth, it is a continent that is gone, a land forgotten save for a few poets whose ancient songs tell of its vanished glory. Can we say that it is lost? No, nothing in nature can be lost. But great changes have come in the eternal program of divinity. As a land, it is no more but a memory. It will remain forever in the soul of the mystic, while the wondrous lesson that it teaches is well worth the glory that is gone. Nature is like the changing surface of the sea and the waves that come and go. Today, a thing is... Tomorrow it is no more, but somewhere in the endless vistas of the infinite, the thing that once has been shall always be. In a new environment, in settings change, its life goes on, manifesting the powers of the creator. The broken flower is gone, not dead. It has vanished, but is not lost. Somewhere, mid-stick or star, it will bloom again. In other lands, it will carry on its work of charming the eyes of the world and building ever more stately mansions and more complex organisms to give greater expression to its tiny life. Its message is eternal and its life is without an end. In order to understand the sublime message that the wondrous mystery of Atlantis is necessary to realize the indestructibility of all things, and while its continent now lies beneath the ocean, its work still goes on. Its memory remains. Its fingerprints are on the marble slabs of eternity. Its work is never done. But when it needs new fields for its endeavors, nobler channels for its expression, it goes on to other worlds, to other lands, to other beings, and it's empty. Broken shell molds from the sight of men. Let us picture for a moment that this lost continent, inhabited by a strange race, a few broken remnants of which still wander the earth, tottering slowly towards the veil of oblivion, here and there still walks a red man. The remnants of the dying people of the ancient Egyptians of the pharaohs is gone, and now there lives in its place another people. His last great stronghold in the Western Americas has been broken, and as a dying wanderer, let us pass again back through the ages to the dawn of human thought, 
Let us read again their record in the living powers of nature. As we gaze into the eternal mystery, we can see mountains rise from the blue waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Great plains clothed in verdure glorious appear from the darkness of the tomb. Wanderous cities with twisting spiral minarets rise upward to the sky. Colleges and universities paved in marble dot the fairest of all lands. Great coliseums and amphitheaters, which modern man has never sought to build, rise out of the mists and bring back memories of days gone by. A beautiful land stretches before your eyes, a continent that blossoms as a rose, which extended all over the great area, where now the mighty Atlantic rolls. Far up in Iceland and Scandinavia, from Nova Scotia and Labrador, through banks of ice and snow, great mountains rise, peopled with strange wild beings. Further south, the beautiful lands, they wandered mid fertile fields, which they tilled, and over wondrous mountains that they climbed, a mighty race of happy laughing people, strong of arm, great of heart, glorious in ideals. They were the red men that are now fast disappearing in the setting sun. There amidst them, great nations were established, princely governments were built, great universities spread knowledge to the corner of creation, kings and emperors in robes of silk and gold, in jewels and diamonds, the heritage of gods ruled over mighty people as numberless as blades of grass. During those days, great giants labored the earth. Man was no puny being as he is today, but rather like the one-eyed cyclops gods of Homer and the strange beings of the Odyssey and Iliad. There the frost giants of Scandinavia walked the earth in the millions of years that are past, and the glorious, grand, and wonderful truth is that these giants are not dead. The Hercules of myth still lives. The bodies have changed, but so surely as these ancient peoples wandered the earth in the dawn of this day of creation, so surely we are those peoples. You and I have wandered amid the temples of Atlantis. On ancient tablets, now lost, in languages forgotten, were engraved the history of mighty things, of the world in its making, of the glory of gods and sages that walked with men. You and I were there in the ages listed with the dead. We wandered through the pillars of the ancient temples. In the robes of glory, we stood before the altar fires. We gazed down from the mountain tops in pride and glory upon the works of our hands. Stone by stone, we built the city of the Golden Gates. We were the Atlanteans who raised temples on the mountain peaks to the glory of our God. Through the ages, we labored as slaves. We have known the master's whip as kings. We have held the scepters. And today we are living the things we once were as we raise our eyes and gaze into the future as of old from the mountain peaks of Atlantis. In order that we may appreciate the civilization of the ancients, it is necessary for us to accept this principle, this great fundamental principle of continuity of life. Those unwilling to accept this principle can never learn the mysteries of Atlantis. They can never know why the continent came and vanished again. In order to find the true reason, 
we must gaze back to the things we were and realize again how the altar fires in the temples burn low and dying, buried beneath them the nations of the dead. Let us try to picture one of these great Atlanteans, his massive frame, his glorious brow, his eyes filled with the luster of primitive, primitive life, unhampered by the ties which bury races, unbroken by the millstone of today's affairs, which in the land of ours are grinding human hearts to feed ambition. They had many things that we have lost. We have many things they never knew. The reason for it all is that man must grow along with lines. If it were only necessary for him to have a glorious body and strength divine, then the world have, would have ended with Atlantis, or its end might have come in the days of classic Greece, and the work would have been well finished in the new civilization with which he works. But one day in the mystic future, he will pass beyond anything that ever was before, and having reached the heights of it all, the white race will draw its shroud around it and vanish to make way for other peoples and other works. But the same spirits will remain. Let us learn the lessons of Atlantis and build again in the mirror of the mind the things that brought us its grand destruction in the seventh day of creation. We are the breakers of new ground, but here we go on we must review the old we must live again that great power of concrete thought which was the crowning genius of atlantis we must remember its philosophies and sciences then shall be crowned with a new power to which all races are striving the power of creative genius the power of abstract thought the power to unite and that spiritual eye which sees the oneness of life and the brotherhood of man. The keynote of Atlantis was the survival of the fittest. Its great ones were great because the weak were weaker, but in our day, a new power is being added. We have not yet reached the glory of the Aztec king before coming, before the coming of the white race, but we will reach it and pass it with great power of compassion, crowning us more gloriously than ever. But in passing, let us learn the lessons on the way. Our world today stands as Atlantis stood. Our buildings rise upward. They many towers pointing to the sky. Our libraries are filled with ancient wisdom. Our scientists and philosophers are exploring the mysteries of nature. Again, we fly through the air and under the sea. Again, we walk the path that Atlantis walked. But we must go on. We must survive to the glory of a greater work. The great birthright of every people is to labor with new things. This new world has dreams which Atlantis never dared to conceive and possibilities undreamt of by the men of old. But to do great things, we must have the courage of conviction and the power to pave the way. You see, we have other works to do in other ways. For a day we have forgotten the things we were. A veil conceals the past that we may learn the new thing in a different way. We are unfolding new power, building new faculties, mastering new arts, creating new ideals. 
The old soul, its years measured by the labors it has done, is now confronted with a great problem. It is our duty to take the best that Atlantis has to give, to learn the mysteries that Lemuria, now lost beneath the waters of Australasia, gave us in times more ancient even than Atlantis, and use them as steps to build upon their top a new temple based upon the foundation of old, to go higher, to reach ever heavenward, is the age-long cry of the mysteries. It is the same cry that sounded through the temples of Atlantis. It is the fulfillment of this inner urge that makes necessary new experiences that bring worlds out of the waters and causes others, their labors finished, to vanish from the sight of man. In Atlantis, many of the things we call sublime would have formed but kindergarten classes amid those ancient philosophers. White domed temples of education filled Atlantis. Every city, no matter how small, was crowned by its universities and colleges, and in the city of the Golden Gates were the divine sources of learning which initiated those who came out of the world into the ways of the gods. We have taught many things they did not know, but they taught things which we today cannot remember, but still have for but still have hidden in our souls to use again when the moment arises. Or perhaps we were thoughtless then as we are now, and today we little realize life because we never lived or studied it then. Therefore, we wandered through the mazes of religion. Our spiritual teachers contradict each other eternally, and when we read the mysteries of Revelation, we believe the writer must have written for himself alone. We wander betwixt sacred philosophies and moral ethics, which are sealed truths that mean nothing to our souls. We were the drones amid the hives of learning, as oftentimes we are today. So now we know what we learn then, and tomorrow we shall know by what we learn today. We can tell the world how to live, but we cannot make them live it. Those who were told but did not practice today know not the lessons that they might have learned. There was a city of the Golden Gates, a temple dedicated to the worship of light, the divine principles of human knowledge. This light was served by the priestcraft. It was served also by the legislator. It was honored and adored by all the powers of the ancient land. From between the pillars of this temple came forth the priest kings. Here, humbly, from the altar they prayed that the divine light from the seven stars might come down to them. But the years went by end. Materialism took the place of spirituality. Then came the handwriting on the wall. The stars in their courses upon the heavens penned strange celestial words upon the blue field of eternity. And the priests raised their crucifixes and cried, Behold, the sun god is murdered, and the light is passing over into darkness. Then the great cataclysms came that shook this mighty people to the very foundations of their world. The savages from the north and south fought with the civilized people who tried to enslave and defraud them. They were driven back, but the debt of blood was upon the hands of Atlantis, and the priests of the ancient temples cried in the marketplaces. With the spilling of blood, Atlantis has sealed its doom.
Its high spiritual ideals were buried beneath the materiality. Death and pestilence walked in its ways. Degeneracy and lust overran its people, and its nations were drenched in blood. There are many kinds of blood. There is that which come from broken hearts. There is the lifeblood that pours from the soul. There is the blood of our fellow men. And all this was loosened by the following peoples of Atlantis. Again, the warning of the gods broke upon it. Its nation were split and torn and more and more black light took the place of the white. Slowly, the divine priest king lost touch with God. His connection with divine powers, which mold the destiny of worlds, was broken. The priestcraft lost its sacred word, the name of the living God. The light went out upon the altars. Magic and sorcery took the place of sacred mysteries, and from the gods no longer flowed the life which makes nations live. A new people was born out of the land of darkness to carry the dying fires and the Shekinah's glory out of the lost land. All glorious things, it seems, must sometime wither. All the flowers that bloom must one day fade. Blessed are those who know the fading flower, but marks the passing of a life to a more glorious work. For man need not be always in the trough of the sea, but may step from the crest of one wave to the crest of the next. So a new race was born to take charge of those who were true, and the great brotherhood slowly formed a new people amid the falling temple pillars of the old, and the sacred ark with the cherubim, sacred to the Lord, passed slowly onward to the west. Around them gathered the faithful ones, and the great light went out in the land of darkness, which again was shattered by the mighty cataclysms. Its people were torn by an unknown fire. None knew what the fire was, for they had not read the handwriting on the wall. They had not heard the warning which the white-robed priests had spoken to them from the housetops, nor the sacred words which were chanted from the temple steps, for their ranklings and dissensions had drowned its note. But the voices had sounded from the temples of Atlantis, saying, Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. The great brotherhood, whoever, worked on, however, in a mysterious way, and a new continent was unrolled for the chosen peoples. A great pathway was made in the waters. Those who still served the noble and true passed onward into the promised land. All that was left of the continent of Atlantis was a single island. At last, this dying remnant of Atlantis sank, and in less than 24 hours, millions of souls were freed from the molds of clay. Now comes the problem. With all their arts and sciences, crystallization crept in, which is the end of all that lives. The crystallization of thought, vitality, and growth. Nothing has to crystallize, nothing has to crystallize but all things do that stagnate. Today we face the same problem that brought about the destruction of Atlantis in the ages that are past. Our lands stretch out in peace and plenty, and we too feel secure. Nothing surely can happen to us, yet the moment no man knoweth. 
But one thing we do know, either the work must be done and done well, either the soul must learn its lessons or else new environments are necessary to make the completion possible. Then again, the thunderbolts of Jove be loosened and the eternal scythe reap in its harvest. Let us consider some of the causes that brought about the destruction of Atlantis. The first was blood. All those who live by the sword shall perish by the sword, and with the first drop of blood that man sheds comes the price. His own must flow. Blood feeds the flames of passion, and when the animal in man is fed, he becomes as a raving wolf, and the four horsemen ride forth on their journey to destruction. Only peace can bring peace, and that must come from man himself. We are all the body of the Father. We are all of Christ in flesh. And when each of us does as he should, things will prosper. Not with the transcending prosperity that rises up and then disappears like a comet, but with the slow gradual growth that marks the spreading oak. Unless man learns the ways of peace, the day is not far off when the blue waves will break over his homes and the light will go on to other lands. The second necessity of man is to find the lost art of beauty. Probably you do not know what beauty means, for beauty is a mystic thing. We can look at a man like Lincoln, as homely as the fence rails that he split, yet there is beauty there. We can look around us, many are we can look around us, many are there whom we call handsome, but beauty is not there. There is much prettiness, but little beauty. As we look at the gods of Greece and Rome, we find what the world has long called beauty. But when you look at the eyes, you will find a blank, for the sculptures did not fill them. Few realize what beauty is, or how subtle are its ways. None know it who have it. None realize who really possess it. It is something that shines out and molds man into an expression of self. Gold trinkets, ribbons, and powder puff are not the secrets of beauty. Beauty is of the soul, and we need more of it. We must have more of that beauty that molds form into the ideal. The eyes of form see the beauty of form, but the true mystic realizes that the source of beauty is not the form. It is the soul that shines within. We may look over the world at those who are now judged as the beautiful, the handsome, the distinguished. And yet, always there is something missing, and it was the loss of that something that sank the continent of Atlantis. We must have more beauty, and the world must realize more and more that beauty is as beauty does. Never mind how perfect the form, if the soul and mind be not there, it is an empty shell. It is a dead thing without a reason for its being. The beauty of harmony based upon strength. The beauty of peace strong on the foundation of compassion. The beauty of purity supported by knowledge is missing. It was missing with the later Atlanteans. And if we would not follow in their footsteps, we must find it again today. We must mold our lives into the divine glory we seek under the name of Christ, into the grandeur that was found 
in the temples of the ancients, where a beautiful life molded a body worthy of a Greek god. The beauty of compassion, of love, and of spiritual thought is sadly missing in the world today. It is the first to go. We hardly know when it goes. Slowly it fades away, and with it fades the strength of a people. Long before the inharmony breaks forth as a ravenous flood, this subtle something vanishes in the night. It is the handwriting on the wall, a warning to all who live. For when beauty goes, with it goes the strength of people. We can bring it back, this elusive thing, this psyche, floating over the marshlands, veiled in a mystic haze, a something unseen but felt. It must come back if our age is to reach the goal it seeks. There is something else also that must return. The universities of Atlantis must be built again. We must raise again the schools of learning by learning how to live. For the ignorant are dead and there are none so ignorant as those that will not learn. There are none so blind as those who will not see. Yet we forget. But let this thought be in our minds. Those who forget shall be forgotten. Our world is filled with forgetful people who forget by habit and have forgotten so long that now they cannot remember. But in some way, they must be helped to learn. We must understand the meaning of education. To draw forth, not to cram in, to bring out that which we have already built within. From the heart of our being, blaze forth the fires of Atlantis. In our souls is the history of peoples as we have lived it. We must remember it. We must draw forth that knowledge, for the great thing we would build can only be raised upon the things we know. If we are to create dream castles in the ethers, we must bring back again the power of dreaming. We cannot imagine that which we have never known, or Think of that which we have never been. Therefore, education means to draw forth and profit by the things that we have been and the lessons that we have learned. This world must learn. If it learns as Atlantis did, it will die. But if it profits by the lessons of Atlantis, it will live. And each of us were the Atlanteans and have studied the lessons that can save our land. It is no longer a problem of what we want to do. It is what we should do. It is what the duties of the nature demand of us. In the name of God's we must act. Let us remember the blood that sank Atlantis. Blood is heat, strife, and confusion. It is the life force of the universe. It is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. It is the power of the people. We must take the golden chalice and catching in it the lifeblood that now we waste Return it to the altar of our God. Then too we must have beauty, beauty of thought, glory of ideal. The love of men must give place to the love of God. The passion of our age must be transmuted into the compassions of God. Form must give place to spirit, or again we shall be numbered with the dust. We must have education. If we do not, we shall find out to our sorrow that the strength of a people depends upon the knowledge that it applies, not upon the hopes, wishes, or the willy-nilly blowing of concepts, but upon the solid rock of truth must our nation stand. Man is a slave for his fears. 
a servant of ignorance and a groveling wretch at the feet of the unknown. We must rise and taking this light, explore the recesses of each mystic cave. Each individual, if he does not know how to live, to eat, to think, must find out. The gods will never tell him unless he hears the voices of the gods in the wisdom of his fellow man. The way of knowledge, brotherhood, service, the way of purity and truth alone can liberate us from the wheels of birth and death. We may talk of our shortcuts, back doors, second stories, patent medicine, spirituality, canned religion, just as goods, etc. To say nothing of the advanced spiritual teachings which transcend common sense, but unless we live the life to which we aspire, we shall be numbered with Atlanteans. It is important to know that these things by far than rounds and periods, for upon them rests life itself. We are governed by the laws of cause and effect. Today we are building the causes which sank the Atlantean world, and we can expect nothing better for ourselves. We must realize that the earth beneath our feet is indeed the sun of necessity, born that man may live. It will mold itself into the needs of man, but its needs are seldom his wants. Humanity needs a good house cleaning, but they do not want it. It must either come about through our loving service and labors and our fellow man or the thunderbolts of Jove. Let the spiritual fires of our universities rise from the plains of matter. Let the grandeur of ancient Greece be ours. Let us live that we shall be a credit to the creation and to the plan that brought us into being. As Luther Burbank converted the cactus with its prickly thorns into a nutritious into a nutritious food product by removing the sting, so let us transmute the powers of the people that they may rebuild and recreate. It is more important far to help someone who is not able to help himself than to have been cloistered for hours with the sages. We warn all occultists and true students that their place is in the world of working and not in the temple praying, that their duty is to make the world their temple, to don the white armor of purity and ideals, and armed with the greatest of all weapons, which leaves no sting, the sword of truth, knowledge, and light, to go out and labor for the right. We cannot escape the sorrows of the world, but we can go out and change its tears to laughter, and be in a happier world that we ourselves made. So we stand on the cliff of lost Atlantis, and see the restless sea breaking upon the shore, and hear the dark waves which are like surging of lost people. Let us realize that they are, they are our own lives, and that they our own voices speak to us from the depths of the waters, salty with the bitterness of the tears of millions who allowed black magic to replace the true mysteries, even as we do today. Black magic means the perversion of things. When we use energy to destroy, when we tear down the dream castles of those we love, when we fill our lives with sordidness, we are black magicians. When we take the powers of God and use them to deceive our fellow man, when we use the powers God gave us to free our souls, to cast down, 
than we are black magicians who have not learned our lessons from sinking Atlantis. Let us open wide the gates. Let the gates of brass swing open and man come forth. Let the tombstones be rolled away and the divine in man be released from the shackles that now bind us. Let the divine in us be liberated and Christ call unto the lower man, Lazarus, come forth. Let our ideals be gleaming lights upon the hilltops. We must tear up the thistles and briars before it is too late and plant flowers in their place and dedicate our lives to helping, serving, lifting, purifying, and glorifying mentally, physically, and spiritually, all with whom we come in contact. We shall then be listed with the white-robed brothers who, carrying the sacred relics, pass with them into the promised land. A new race is to be born. Who will be its parents? There are few on earth who are ready to give to the new land a proper birthright. Let us remember once more the three things which bring with them the loss of all. The prices of blood, the loss of beauty, the perversion of education, which sank an empire greater far from our own, and that the same power will sink this continent unless in each individual peace and brotherhood takes the place of blood and hate. Beauty of spirit replaces sordidness of life, and that great eternal light, knowledge, supplants human ignorance. Introduction and excerpts from the book Edgar Casey on Atlantis by Edgar Evans Casey under the editorship of Hugh Lynn Casey. First published March 1968. Introduction. Should an engineer jeopardize his professional reputation, invite his friends, scorn, and risk public ridicule by writing a book supporting the legend of Atlantis? The answer is probably no, unless he happened to have been on speaking terms with Edgar Casey and familiar with his work, particularly his life readings. I was on speaking terms with Edgar Casey for my birth in 1918 until his death in 1945. He was my father. Furthermore, I have spent a great deal of time studying the records he left, especially the set of life readings concerning Atlantis. First, I should like to summarize the legend of Atlantis and introduce the reader to the Edgar Casey life readings and the theory of reincarnation. Only then will it be possible to understand the fantastic ideas and events depicted in the Amazing Atlantis documents. The information from these readings has been arranged to the best of my ability in chronological order. Books, encyclopedias, and newspapers have been scanned for discoveries that seem to confirm statements made by Edgar Cayce. Usually the reader is presented with a summary of the information together with my opinion of its importance to him in particular and to the American in general. Finally, the reader is presented with a summary of the information together with my opinion of its importance to him in particular to America in general. There are good, perhaps imperative reasons why these data should be seriously considered. 
Let us turn now to the legend of Atlantis and the arguments for and against its existence. The oldest known mention of Atlantis is found in two of Plato's dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, which date in the 5th century BC. Plato introduces Atlantis in a conversation between Solon and certain Egyptian priests at Salz as a large island in the Atlantic which sank in the volcanic which sank in volcanic catastrophe some 9000 years previously. Since Plato's time there have been hundreds of books and articles written about Atlantis, most of these in the last 200 years. Some try to show that Plato's story of Atlantis was not only possible, but probable. Others try to prove Atlantis a myth, or else rationalize the story by associating Atlantis with some locality other than the mid-Atlantic and changing the date to a more recent figure. A large portion of the Atlantis literature resides in the voluminous works of occultists of one variety or another, and the unorganized products of eccentrics. It is the attention given to the Atlantis legend by pseudoscientists and cultists that causes legitimate scientists to avoid even discussing the subject. Several medieval writers refer to the legendary land, but probably the best known and most popular book on Atlantis is Ignatius Donnelly's Atlantis, first published in 1882. It was revised and edited by Egerton Skies in 1949. No book published before or since has accumulated such a mass of geological, archaeological, and legendary material, nor presented so many ingenuous and eloquent arguments to support the legend of Atlantis. The writer spends this like a good portion of chapter one talking about all the people trying to refute and also prove that Atlantis existed. But I'm not going to read all that. <clears throat> so we'll just come to after that in chapter one where he gets goes on about it. Finally, we seem to be going around in circles. The harder one tries to Edgar Case is in a very unenviable position. On the other hand, if he proves if it proves accurate on this score, he may become as famous as an archaeologist or historian as he was as a medieval clairvoyant. The 2,500 life readings on file were given for were given for approximately 1,600 different people. About 700 of these people had incarnations on Atlantis that influenced their present lives. Almost 50% of those who received life readings, however, Edgar Casey did not mention every incarnation for each individual. Only those incarnations that would influence them and most in their current life. And those experiences that might be more helpful. It is not impossible, therefore, that almost everyone living today was in Atlantis at one time or another. The amazing thing about this particular set of life readings is their internal consistency. Although given for hundreds of different people over a period of 21 years, 1923 to 1944, they may be pieced together to form a coherent, non-contradictory series of events. Individual abilities, weaknesses, 
Individual abilities and weaknesses are reflected in successive lives. When many entities who have lived together at one period of time, again, reincarnate in another era, group or national tendencies become apparent. According to Edgar Casey readings, many individual souls or, entity, or entities who had one or more incarnations in Atlantis are reincarnating in the earth in this century, particularly in America. Along with technological abilities, they bring tendencies for being extremists. <laughs> Often they exhibit individual and group karma associated with selfishness and exploitation where others are concerned. <clears throat> Many of them live during one of the periods of destruction or geological changes in Atlantean history. If Edgar Casey's prophecies are correct, a small period of earth changes is eminent. Unfortunately, few questions were asked about the dates and seldom was the information volunteered. Only a few life readings give definite dates of occurrences in Atlantis. However, by correlating names and events in these with those in undated ones, we arrive at a view admittedly hazy and incomplete in spots, extending far back into the unrecorded history of mankind. Instead of continent destroyed in a single day, as related by Plato, we get glimpses of man's activity in a land wrecked by at least three major upheavals at widely separated times. There are statements, which we shall examine in detail, that many changes have occurred in land areas, some having sun sunk, risen, and sunk again. From the earliest dates mentioned, millions of years ago to the present, there are some indications of disturbances about 50,000 years BC. Another upheaval seems to have taken place at about 28,000 BC, at which time the continent was split into islands, while the final destruction of the remaining islands took place at about 10,000 BC. And it is this last destruction, I think, that Plato describes in his writings. Each period of destruction lasted months or years rather than days. In each case, there was a sufficient warning so that many of the inhabitants escaped to Europe, Africa, and America. Thus, according to Edgar Casey readings, both of the Americas and portions of Europe have felt the influx of Atlanteans more than once in unrecorded past. Why does Edgar Casey say that Atlantean incarnations exert so much influence on individuals, particularly in our time? He answers this question in a general reading given to provide material for a lecture on Atlantis. Quote, Be it true that there is the fact of reincarnation and that souls that once occupied such a place as Atlantis are entering the Earth's sphere and inhabiting individuals in the present. It is any wonder that if they made such alterations in the affairs of the earth in their day as to bring destruction upon themselves, if they are entering now, they might make many changes in the affairs of peoples and individuals in the present. End quote. When we look at individuals who seem to have once been citizens of a country strikingly similar to their 20th century America, we often may recognize personal as well as national fault. This is the first step towards salvation. As illustrated in the parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 11-32. Note verse 17. Faults once recognized may be corrected, and America may yet 
be spared the fate that overtook Atlantis. At least some individuals may be able to change as Robert Dunbar did and lead a creative rather than destructive life. What kind of nonsense is this? Is there any basis for such ideas other than in the imagination of Edgar Cayce? Let us turn first to the source of information and then see how it holds up in the light of recent discoveries. If it does, we will be able to look at the future through the mind of a psychic and try to glimpse our dubious destiny. I encourage you to read this book. It's full of his readings about Atlantis and they're very, very cool. But I'm just going to leave you with his final thoughts from the book. And it starts with a quote from Edgar Cayce. It's from a reading, from reading 262-89, and it says, Most of us think we need a great deal more than we do. I think there's a lesson to be learned from his story of Atlantis about being too materialistic and how it can destroy civilization. The book goes on. These are the same problems that perplex us today. We go through life acquiring possessions that we must eventually leave here. How much better it would be to turn our attention to developing spiritual qualities that will abide with us throughout eternity. Such problems are the concerns of thoughtful men. In 1959, Dr. Lawrence M. Gould, president of Carleton College in Minnesota, gave an address entitled, Why Men Survive. He pointed out that 19 out of 21 notable civilizations died from within. Dr. Gould said, the greatest threat to ours is not an atom or guided missiles, but neglect of the spiritual forces that make us wish to be right and noble. He continued, if America is to grow great, we must stop gagging at the word spiritual. Our task is to rediscover and reassert our faith in the spiritual, non-utilitarian values on which American life has really rested from its beginning. Dr. Gould echoes some of Edgar Cayce's readings. I offer the following as an example of these. Reading 281-41. What is your God? Are you ambitious only set in what you shall eat tomorrow or wherewith you shall be clothed? You have little faith, little hope that allows such to become paramount issues in your own consciousness. Know you not that you are his, for you are of his making. He has not willed that you should perish, but he left it with you as to whether you will ever become aware of your relationship with him or not. Reading 5755-2. Though there may be words, many universes, even solar systems greater than our own, the earth is a mere speck when considered even with our own solar system. Yet the soul of man, your soul, encompasses all in this solar system and in others. For we are joint heirs with the universal force we call God if we seek to do his bidding. This philosophy is not intended as a sermon. Edgar Casey never wanted to start a new cult or religion. 
The Association for Research and Enlightenment Members do not form a strange sect. The readings repeatedly say that the thought expressed should not pull you away from your church, but should make you a better Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Jew, Mormon, or whatever you are. Edgar Casey's philosophy is intended to expand your consciousness to broader and more rational concepts of your own faith, to help you discover your relationship to God. And here, I think, lies the greatest appeal of the Edgar Casey life readings for individuals. Dolores Cannon, who was a hypnotherapist specializing in past life regression and was a super famous and a famous author writing about all of her crazy readings she did. Um, she um, has a lot of ideas and had a lot of readings that involved Atlantis. So I just wanted to read you what she thought about it or just like a few of her ideas <clears throat> that I came across. It starts like this. From past life regression sessions, I have conducted information about how Atlantis fell from a high civilization to total oblivion appears to have multiple causes. The Atlanteans were first assisted in their development by aliens carrying out the creator's plan, but sadly were seduced by the power of their own technology and mastery of genetic engineering. Atlantis was situated between two volatile tectonic plates and when the Atlantean scientists began to experiment with energy deep within the earth itself they inadvertently created an imbalance that caused catastrophic earthquakes and tidal waves that devastated the entire continent forcing Atlantean survivors to flee for their lives as I've written before the aliens monitoring the earth at that time were not allowed to interfere with the continent of Atlantis no longer in existence, some of the Atlanteans who escaped the catastrophe made their way across the newly enlarged Atlantic Ocean to the area that we now call Egypt. They brought their technology with them and began a new society that would eventually rule over the primitive native inhabitants of the land. When I conduct a session, I am always ready with a list of questions, and when the opportunity arose, I had to ask if the building of the pyramids had a connection to aliens. Still, a subject I had worked with many times revealed the following information about pyramids of Egypt while deep in trance. Quote, These structures were built with the aid of levitation, which is being rediscovered in some areas of Earth today. The act of moving these stones was accomplished with pure mental energy. There were a group of five to seven priests who were schooled in this and many other advanced sciences. The knowledge was transferred from Atlantis. The pyramids were a gift from Atlantis. End quote. Interesting information arose in subsequent sessions with another subject that pointed to pyramids being associated with aliens and only communicated with the leader of the advanced Atlantean people who settled in Egypt and oversaw the pyramid's construction. This subject revealed that aliens used the power of their disc-shaped ships made of a shiny metallic substance similar in appearance to the flying saucers we're familiar with which controlled mental energy and projected it deep into the space up for their own purposes. They directed the construction of seven pyramids in Egypt with perfect astronomical alignments. But to what end? My investigations on the subject continue to this day. This would explain similar structures that were erected in different parts of the world, such as Mexico, where the Mayan mythology associated pyramids with gods from the stars, otherworldly beings we could call aliens 
who would return to Earth one day. It would appear that long-vanished pyramids of Atlantis and the ruins of pyramids that remain in Egypt and elsewhere in the world were built with the knowledge or assistance of aliens. So that last one was from one of her books. Um, but it's, I'm having trouble finding which one, sorry. And the second one is from another book of hers called Legacy from the Stars. Um... Here we go. One mystery that has puzzled the minds of men for ages is the existence of ancient civilizations of Atlantis and any connections it may have had to aliens from other worlds. Through my decades of work as a hypnotherapist and past life regressionist, I've been told that many people living today were also alive at the time of Atlantis. Aliens visiting our world in ancient times helped to develop Atlantis and other ancient civilizations with the hope that Earth would become advanced enough to join the galactic community. Aliens have been visiting the Earth from the very beginning, seeding life on the planet as part of God's plan to create and experience life through all the universes. The Earth has had many ancient civilizations over the course of millions of years, and the continents had risen and disappeared for millennia before Atlantis even existed. Alien beings from other worlds and dimensions play a key role in its rise and eventual fall. What was Atlantis like? From what I've been told in many sessions over the years, it was highly evolved spirits. It was highly evolved spiritually, more than mankind is today, and its citizens enjoyed bountiful lives. They employed the power of crystals to provide light and heat and lived in beautiful buildings made of natural materials. Did the Atlanteans learn how to use crystal energy to cut enormous blocks of stone for their pyramids from aliens? It seems that as Atlantis and its peoples evolved over thousands of years, their way of life and technology also changed, just as modern societies has. Is there a pattern to the growth and decline of ancient civilizations such as Atlantis? Moreover, are we as humans responsible or are aliens orchestrating life on the planet behind the scenes? An overriding theme that runs through much of the information I have received is that of karma and personal responsibility. It makes sense that many aliens involved in human development have given gifts to mankind throughout the ages, but they are not allowed to interfere if humans have created their own problems that they must learn and grow from. Such is the case with Atlantis. I've been told they developed new technology, including flying vehicles, and made direct contact with aliens who visited Earth at the time and continue to do so today. It also appears that the inhabitants of Atlantis were highly developed mentally, but not in the modern sense of what we would call intellectually. The information I've received revealed that irresponsible experiments in genetics, cloning and energy, and the egocentric application of these technologies exceeded the spiritual knowledge of the Atlanteans to the point where the civilization destroyed itself. By adhering to the universal law of non-interference, aliens were forbidden from intervening. The comparisons with modern civilization are stark and startling. Those who expect aliens to save Earth now and solve all the problems we have created for ourselves will be wise to study the fate of Atlantis. Dun, dun, dun. I'm going to start Plato's part with a quote from one of his Socratic dialogues that include Atlantis. 
For it is related in our records how once upon a time your state stayed the course of a mighty host, which starting from a distant point in the Atlantic Ocean was insolently advancing to attack the whole of Europe and Asia to boot. For the ocean there was at that time navigable, for in front of the mouth, which you Greeks call, as you say, the Pillars of Hercules, there lay an island, which was larger than Libya and Asia together, and it was possible for the traveler of the time to cross from it to the other islands, and from the islands to the whole of the continent, over against them, which encompasses the veritable ocean. For all that we have here, lying within the mouth of which we speak, is evidently a haven having a narrow entrance, but that yonder is a real ocean, and the land surrounding it may most rightly be called, in the fullest and truest sense, a continent. Now, in this island of Atlantis, there exists a confederation of kings, of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island, and over many other islands also, and parts of the continent." The original story of the lost island of Atlantis comes actually from um, two Socratic dialogues of Plato's, um, Timaeus and Critias. They're both written about uh, 360 BC. Um, so the dialogues were prepared as a festival speech by Plato to be told on the day of Panath. Athena, in honor of the goddess Athena. Um, he described the meaning of two men who had met the previous day to hear Socrates describe the ideal state. According to the dialogue, Socrates asked three men to meet him on this day, Timaeus of Locri, Hermocrates of Syracuse, and Critias of Athens. Socrates asked the men to tell him stories about how ancient Athens interacted with other states. The first to report was Critias, who told of how his grandfather had met with the Athenian poet and lawgiver Solon, one of the seven sages. Solon had been to Egypt, where priests had compared Egypt and Athens and talked about gods and legends of both lands. One such Egyptian story was about Atlantis. So Plato describes a set of circumstances um, to represent how the utopia of Atlantis failed and became a lesson to us <clears throat> how we can do better. Um, yeah. So in the story, according to the Egyptians, or rather what Plato described, Critias reporting, what his grandfather was told by Solon, who heard it from Egyptians, little telephone there. Once upon a time, there was a mighty power based on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. The empire was called Atlantis, and it ruled over several other islands and parts of the continent of Africa and Europe. <clears throat> Atlantis was arranged in concentric rings of alternating water and land. The soil was rich, said Critias. The engineers technically accomplished and the architecture extravagant with baths, harbor installations, and barracks. 
The central plain outside the city had canals and a magnificent irrigation system. Atlantis had kings and a civil administration, as well as an organized military. The rituals matched Athens for bull baiting, sacrifice, and prayer. But then it waged an unprovoked imperialistic war on the remainder of Asia and Europe. When Atlantis attacked, Athens showed its excellence as the leader of the Greeks and much smaller city-state, the only power to stand against Atlantis. Alone, Athens triumphed over the invading Atlantean forces, defeating the enemy, preventing the free from being enslaved and freeing those who had been enslaved. From the battle, there were violent earthquakes and floods, and Atlantis sank into the sea, and all the Athenian warriors were swallowed up by the earth. So, <clears throat> it's probably worth looking more into what Plato thought and um, reading his dialogues. But, I'll just read you a little bit off Wikipedia, just to give us a bit better of an idea of like the broader of his information about Atlantis. So it says Atlantis is an island mentioned in the allegory of on the hubris of nations in Plato's works, Timaeus and Critias, wherein it represents the anti where then wherein it represents the antagonist naval power that besieges ancient Athens. The pseudo-historic embodiment of Plato's ideal state in the Republic. In the story, Athens repels the Atlantean attack unlike any other nation of the known world. Sounds pretty propagandish to me. <laughs> um, and then it leads to the ultimate destruction of Atlantis. The story concludes that Atlantis was falling out of favor with the deities and submerging into the Atlantic Ocean. Basically, Plato says that the Atlantis became a morally corrupt society. And so the deities began to frown upon them and they began to use their technology against others. And um, their greatest adversary, I guess, with that was Athens, as Plato says. And uh, Athens, I guess, defeated them right before the cataclysm. So, yeah, there's some parallels there. <laughs> so we come to the end of our little Atlantis introspective from the mystics. And I just want to say I'm still not really sure what I think about it. But I'm, it's like been on my mind lately. And, uh, you know, when things are on your mind, the clues come to you just like magic. So I'm sure... There'll be more Atlantis stuff to come, or maybe this will like uh, connect me to some some other tangent, right? <laughs> but I'm really digging these old mystics, especially like um, Edgar Casey and Manly P. Hall. Like they have such similar um, theories and viewpoints and ideals, and they like developed them from completely different ways, like. Uh, Manly P. Hall's uh, Freemason into like hermetic law, hermetic law, natural law, Kabbalism. Um, is it Kabbalism? Kabbalism? Whatever you call it. 
from the Kabbalah, whatever, those kinds of like ancient magic, mystic stuff. And Edgar Casey, his ideas align so perfectly, but he derived his from hypnotherapy sessions and remote viewing and such. And pretty like similar around timeline. Edgar Casey was a bit earlier though. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed hearing that stuff and get to your like um, mystery bone tickling. <laughs> but I'm going to leave you guys with a poem. And I found this poem on the digital newspaper hub, of course. Um, and it's from the Wilmer Argus, whatever that fucking means, but it's a newspaper, um, from the Minnesota area from May 3rd, 1888. So here is the poem about Atlantis, Atlantis, proud isle of the long distant ages, weird land of philosophers dreams, thy name in all history's pages with mystical radiance gleams enchantment her glamour of glory he cast like a mantle over thee as time has repeated thy story lost gem of the sea atlantis atlantis lost gem of the sea bright sunshine no more gilds thy mountains thy slopes are enshrouded in night undiscerned are thy clear gushing fountains once crowned with a seven-hued light. All hushed are the bird's notes, once gladly resounding over valley and sea. Slow tides through thy forest sweep sadly, lost gem of the sea, Atlantis. Atlantis, lost gem of the sea. Sunk in ruins, thy palaces nestled, where finny tribes fearlessly roam, Far above thy rich fields, the staunch vessel sails swift through the high tossing foam. Thy monuments falling and shattered can give to tradition no key. The threads of thy banners are scattered, lost gem of the sea, Atlantis. Atlantis, lost gem of the sea. Thy sons lie at rest neath the waters, their tombs mid the coral groves placed, and with them repose the fair daughters whose presence thy mansions hall graced. All at peace are thy foes and defenders. Side by side sleep the slaves and the free. What now are thy kingdoms or splendors? Lost gem of the sea, Atlantis. Atlantis, lost gem of the sea. What scenes of earth's newness, Elysian, were rimmed by the curve of the shore. Ere came mighty nature's decision, Stand thou before heaven no more. What tales of the heroic endeavor, what wisdom of wondrous degree are sealed in thy bosom forever. Lost gem of the sea, Atlantis, Atlantis, lost gem of the sea. Great mother of nations unnumbered, once teeming with manifold life. For centuries past thou hast slumbered, unmoved by the surges or strife. Man's curious, questioning, scorning, close hidden by thy secret shall be, till thou greetest eternity's morning, lost gem of the sea, Atlantis. Atlantis, lost gem of the sea. By Charles Morgan Hanger. Oh,